If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Philippians 2. Uh, Philippians 2, we'll uh, read the verse 1 through 11 um, eventually. Um, but I want to start out by uh, talking about something that uh, might worry you a little bit um, where this is going. Um, no, I've done worse before. This is just me asking if y'all have seen a movie before. Um, but uh, maybe not a movie uh, that uh, you have seen. Uh, has anybody seen Juno before? Juno's a sweet movie. Have you seen Juno? I mean, not a sweet. I don't know if sweet's the word, but all right, just a few of you. Um, so this is really good. Um, Juno uh, was a movie that came out when I was about a sen- senior, junior in high school. Um, Ellen Page uh, starred a 16-year-old uh, high school uh, student um, who um, got pregnant. Um, uh, high school, her crush that she uh, had been, you know, infatuated with for a long time, uh, and he was really awkward. They were both very awkward in the movie. You cannot probably wonder why I took so much to the movie. <laughs> um, they were very awkward, and I kind of, you know, thought, hey, that, there's there's more people like me out there. Um, but uh, these two, um, they, um, you know, they, they were infatuated with each other, but too, were both too awkward to ever really date. But they Things happen, and, and she got pregnant. Um, so the the story goes that she had a um, a dad who was um, not married, to, who had divorced her mom, and her mom wasn't in her life anymore. And uh, her stepmom and, and her dad were really kind of estranged, and they didn't really have a relationship. And just kind of a typical kind of baby boomer kind of attitude. Her dad had he was just kind of didn't know how to handle a, a teenage daughter or how to help. So um, she got pregnant. So her friends encouraged her to visit an abortion clinic, and uh, so she goes to an abortion clinic, and uh, she she's you know getting uh, briefed on all the, the options and, and all that, and she's just completely overwhelmed by um, all this, as you would expect a teenage girl to be at this point in her life. Um, and then she leaves, and she's just kind of still trying to figure out what she's going to do. And on the way out, she uh, runs into someone who is holding a, a pro-life vigil. Um, and uh, the person, you know, they're, they're, they're nice to her, and they you know, encourage her to, to keep the child or at least uh, leave it, uh, give it up for adoption. Um, so she goes through that process, and, and thankfully she um, doesn't, uh, doesn't let the baby uh, take, take the baby's life. She uh, decides she's going to turn the baby over for adoption. Um, and she uh, meets a couple um, who... Uh, are going to take the baby. They, they couldn't have kids. Um, and, and the story goes that she becomes really um, kind of friendly with this couple, but she finds out that this couple um, wasn't at the best place themselves. Um, in fact, the, uh, the, the, the husband, um, the would-be adoptive father, um, he uh, is really still a, a teenager himself. You know, he hangs out in a special uh, room in the house where he just plays uh, uh, punk songs and, 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 talks, and talks about, or you know, is into his own things, and uh, his wife does all the work for the family and kind of comes and goes. Um, so Juno begins to spend time um, with the adoptive, would-be adoptive family, um, and uh, on one occasion she is uh, with, uh, she was over over there when the when the wife isn't there and she becomes a little too friendly um, or the husband becomes a little too friendly with her and um, she starts to uh, get a little bit alarmed and, and feels a little bit alerted. Um, he tells her not to worry that he's intending on leaving his wife and that uh, he would be interested in her. And of course, you can imagine a almost uh, uh, full-term 16-year-old who uh, has thought about giving up the baby, now wants to see the baby in a happy family, um, now is in the middle of a, a mess where the husband is, is, is clearly not at a good place and, and, and w- is interested in her. And she leaves there just completely disheveled um, and, and doesn't know what to do. So she goes to the only person that she knows to go to at that point her dad. Um, and her dad, who is played by J.K. Uh, Simmons, great actor, great guy in the movie, but he was not the guy who really had a lot of advice or had a lot of words of encouragement. Um, but she, she goes to her dad and she says, Dad, I, I'm just losing faith 
and humanity in general. I'm just about to just give up. I don't, um, I don't know what to do, and, and, and I don't even you know, know if keeping this baby was the right thing to do and all this stuff. And then she asked her dad, a really poignant question. And the movie's really kind of lighthearted, so I'm, you know, it seems really dramatic, but it's really a lighthearted kind of com- com- comedic movie. Um, but she asked her dad um, a very kind of powerful question um, when you kind of take it on its own, even in the moment. She asked her dad, I just need to know that it's possible that two people can stay happy together forever. And, of course, her dad, being divorced and, and, and so forth, um, wasn't really the person to answer that question um, or really give her any hope. But she's Dad, I just want to know that relationships can last. And this isn't just for married, for, for married people or for couples. This is a, a question or a, a, a you know, conversation to have in general. I just want to know that two people, that friendships, relationships, marriages, of course, can actually last and people can actually enjoy their relationships forever. Of course, the couple that would, would have adopted the baby end up splitting up, and the, the woman takes the baby um, as a single mom, and, and of course, the movie ends and, um, you know, in a lighthearted way. But uh, the, the, that, that statement, I watched that a long time ago, and I was not someone at 17 years old that was really moved by movies, uh, I guess you could say, unless it was some sci-fi stuff, and that really doesn't move anybody, right? Unless you're me, and then you get more stuff out of weird things. But I watched, you know, um, I might actually watch it at school. That was weird. I don't know. I watched it, and I thought, I remember watching it here in that line thinking, man, that is really kind of deep for this kind of movie. And um, it's always kind of my go-to, this is weird, I guess, but you know, you, what do you expect from me? It's always my go-to kind of conversation starter when it comes to um, what, is it, what does it mean for a relationship to last forever? And how can we ensure, and is there a possible, is there a way um, for not just our marriages, but our friendships and our communities that are built and based around friendships and relationships, can they last you know, in our world today, we're so noncommittal, aren't we? We always leave the door open. In any relationship, it seems, in today's world, we always leave the door open. We always want to give ourselves an option. But the hope of Christianity, the hope of Christianity is that it is possible. Not just for couples, but it is possible for all relationships, for all communities, for all churches, for all Christians. It is possible that relationships can indeed last Forever, and we as a church are all, are all about community. We as a church believe that worship, the Bible, Christianity, all are best and properly understood through a communal lens. We believe that that our goal, our goal, isn't that we be just a building full of eyes and mys and me's in our own pews in our own spots, but our goal is to be a unified body of us's, of ours, of we's. We want to emphasize the whole, the community, not just the eyes, the mys, and the me's, and give ourselves the idea that we are not in this together. We believe that actually there's a danger when we open our Bibles and assemble for worship and walk by faith with an individualistic attitude. We actually think that part of the reason why we often so collide with each other, while we bump into each other, it's why Christians, our relational, our relationships in our communities um, are not the healthiest and most functional um, of all. It's because we continue to live from an I over us, a my over our, a me over we place and standpoint. Christians, we're held to a higher standard. And if you're not a Christian, this is true, and you should know this about Christians. Christians are held to a higher, different, better standard than this. Christianity 
isn't defined only by our devotion to God. Our vertical devotion is defined and authenticated by our horizontal relationships. And maybe you haven't, maybe that isn't how you understood Christianity. Maybe that's not how you consider Christianity to be. But the reality is that our vertical worship is not what defines Christianity in and of itself. Our vertical worship, our vertical devotion actually is defined, detailed, and authenticated by our horizontal relationship and dealings with one another. That is the overarching New Testament ideal. So the reason why we make a big deal about community, it's because community keeps one another at the center. Community makes it all about us, our, and we, and doesn't let anybody hide from the whole. Really, community calls to our hearts. Our hearts long for community, and we were born for community. We are incomplete apart from relationships with one another. And there is an innate desire and need for community within every single one of you. This being a reflection of our triune God who is in community himself, his thumbprint on our souls. If you weren't with us last week, we kind of launched this conversation about community and the importance and the necessity around this text um, in the Old Testament written by the wisest man to ever have lived. Solomon says two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. Now Solomon is telling us that the secret to a healthy relationship is to value the people, value the person, don't value the relationship because of what it might give you or what they might do for you. The, the gift, the reward of a relationship is the other person, which shouldn't have to be said, but so often we Miss that. He said in the next verse, For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone. When? Not if. When he falls, for no one will be there to lift him or her up. So here's what Solomon tells us. If we live apart from community, if we live in the opposite way of community, we are setting ourselves up for not only a life unfulfilled, but we're setting ourselves up for fail, fail, fail because when we fall assures us that we will need somebody else. Now this conversation about community it's all about how in life we are often always colliding with each other but what if we vowed to collide together? What if we vowed to remain in community even when it's easy or easier to drift apart and not worry about the other person? Staying together not falling apart. We may stumble along still but we will not have to stumble alone. And that's the goal. That's the gift of Christianity. By nature, we may resist this. Being in a fallen world and the fallout of God's ideal community, we will resist this. But we as a church, we as believers, for our own health, for our own well-being, for our church's future, we don't ignore this call to community. We cannot ignore this call to community. Solomon tells us, the wisest man to ever live, that being restored to God leads us in restoration with one another. Again, this is the New Testament imperative. In fact, Paul writes in Corinthians that God has put us in the ministry of reconciling with one another. So we must strive to see one another as valuable. That's the thing I think we miss the most. Relationships are not a means to an end. They are in and of themselves the end. Relationships are a reward. People are the reward, not a means. So we must value people greater than we value their productivity or the provisions they bring or whatever they may bring or we expect them to bring. 
And, you know, nobody, I don't want you to answer this, but you've used people before, haven't you? Maybe in a very subtle, inoffensive way, but we've all used one another before. Even in our closest relationships, we are guilty of using someone just to make ourselves better off. If we've been reconciled to God, we need to be sure to reconcile our relationships to a right, healthy value place. In our communities, our relationships should be stronger, closer, knit than any others. Solomon would go on in chapter 4 of Ecclesiastes. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. How can one keep warm alone? So Solomon says that community was God's idea from the beginning that we as believers would dwell together and grow together and, and, and worship together and do life together. He said this in verse 12. Though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly or easily broken. So this is the very nature of New Testament Christianity. The model for the church, the commandment and the standard for marriage in every relationship is measured by this. And this is why this is important for the church. Why this is important for you no matter what your personal life looks like. The church is most efficient and most missioned when it's full of people with right, healthy relationships. As in, it, it matters what we do at home. It matters what we do in private because the church is stronger and healthier and more on mission when it's people are full, when it's full of people with right relationships because we understand the value of relationships that we have and the gain in coming together and building new ones. We believe that love must be felt through us. That's something the New Testament makes it very clear. That John writes in 1 John that no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected or displayed through us. So why is it important that the church be full of people who are in relationship with each other? Full of people who are, have healthy relationships in their lives? Because if people are going to see God's love, John says they're going to have to see it through believers. John would go on to ask this very provocative question. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. He says, how can you, how can you claim that you love your brother whom you can see, but not, love the God that you can't see, but you you choose to not love the brother that you can. And and, and isn't it true, isn't it, you know, uh, kind of logical to say that if we can't love God without loving others, Others may not ever see God if they don't see it, see Him and feel it through us, that our love toward them is so important. In fact, Jesus, in the book of Matthew, Jesus made this such an extreme and made this such a big deal. He said, if you're at worship, if you're worshiping and you're into the song and you're, you know, giving something to the offering and you're really enjoying the sermon, but if it dawns on you in worship that you have an alt against someone, that you have a sin is between you and someone else, that you have sinned against a brother or a sister, that you have a broken relationship, Jesus said, get up and leave the building because God will not accept your worship and God is not pleased with your current status regardless of how much you give and how loud you sing and how intently you listen. Now, this is Jesus. So, again, this is a little extreme. But He says, you should leave your place and go and be reconciled to your brother or sister. Then come back and worship. So Jesus makes it pretty important, doesn't He? 
And I never do what I ought to do. I never do what I ought to do when I have an ought against you. This is especially true when it's the case within and for, uh, within and for our closest and most important relationships. And if our closest relationships are not where they should be, our community life will never be where it needs to be. That we will resist being involved. We will resist giving ourselves into the community of God's people. Because if we don't properly love those who we spend the most of our time with, how can we properly love those that we will spend our free time with? And maybe most importantly, if our closest relationships are more burdens than blessings, we will resist the blessing of community. And isn't it true that often there's a disconnect in our participation in God's community when there's an alt in our closest relationships? But if, it, if it's true that there is joy to be found in both, if it's true that we were born for community and relationships, if we are right with one another, we will be in the right place spiritually and physically. We'll be involved where God wants us to be involved. And you see, the problem is, the problem is, however, that we often are so focused on being right at someone that there's no chance at being right with someone. Let me ask you this. In our closest relationships, in your closest relationships, your, your marriage, your, 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 with your child, with your parents, with your best friend, with whomever, in your closest relationships, where does most of the tension and friction stem from? It stems from, it comes when we lock horns as who is right and who is wrong. And you're really good at proving how right you are, aren't you? And you're really bad at proving how wrong you are because you're never wrong, aren't you? Our friction comes from when we are trying to figure out who is right and who is wrong and who's going to back off and accept the other as right. But Christians, Christians, Jesus came to make us righteous, not right. Right is subjective. We define it based on our own expectations, based on who, what we believe, and usually both are right when there's a fight. Righteous, though, is objective. God defines it. God has made us righteous in Christ, but that does not mean we're always right. And of course we're not always right. We need a Savior. That's a confession that we get it wrong a lot, doesn't it? Is, is it it's not okay to be in Christ, yet still do life from a place of I'm right and you're wrong. We're not going to discuss it. When we remain stubborn and selfish as believers, we lose sight of what is most important. Righteous is always concerned with being right with, never right at. Righteous is even willing to lose fights if it means saving the relationship. Hmm. Consider this a temperature check on your most important relationship with your spouse, your parents, your children, your best friend, your co-workers, whomever. Because as a Christian, we bear a responsibility at being righteous as husbands, wives, sons, daughters, dads, moms, employers, employees, as friends. And our text today is perhaps the most important relationship advice anybody can ever give you that's ever been written. And if you use it as a go-to reference, and if you do exactly what it says to do, It'll be a great truth and a great help and a great grace. It'll be timeless. And no matter how often you may collide and butt heads with someone, the Word gives us a path that can and will make our relationships last forever. It's not an easy path and it's not a natural path. So just a warning. But it comes down to a very important and simple question. Do you want your relationships to last? They won't last if this is just a one-sided effort. But at the end of the day, you can only answer for you. 
And when it comes to your place in the church community, if you want to avoid being someone who's always running and always leaving, this is such an important question to wrestle with and a must for anyone with any important relationship in your life. Attraction may have brought you to that person, but a common interest may have brought you into that relationship, but it requires action to stay and remain and last. And Philippians 2 is the call to action. So let's dive in. Chapter 2, verse 1. Paul sets this up as a pretty big deal. So listen to what he says. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, and consolation is where we get the word counsel from, so he is saying if there's any recommendation from Jesus, if Jesus is calling you to do one thing, of course he calls us to do a lot of things, but Paul is trying to make this very narrow, very focused. If Jesus is calling us to do any one thing, if there's any comfort of love or fellowship of, of, of the love of God, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, as in, if there is one way for you to be a Spirit-filled person, or if there is one way for someone to identify you as being one with the Spirit, or filled with the Spirit, or walking with the Spirit, this is how God measures you. So this is pretty, he's setting the bar, he's setting this as a pretty intense thing, right? If there's any affection, any mercy, so if there's any affection in your heart, any mercy toward anybody, anywhere, any place in your heart. And he goes on to talk about relationships, but I'll go ahead and say this. Paul is saying to us, if there is one thing that Christ is calling us towards, if there is any means of participating in the Spirit's earthly activity, it, is, it comes down to being right with one another, being righteous in our relationships. Now that might not be the pomp or the spark that gets you hyped up for faith that you're looking for. But this is where the faith is leading us every single day. This is what it means to be spiritual, Paul says. If, there, if, there, if any of you are sympathetic at all toward obeying God, if you're compassionate at all toward a lost world, you will take serious the status of your relationships and your ability to maintain relationships and your involvement in God's community, your presence in your place. Look at verse 2. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same mind, being of one accord and of one mind, and I'll add, with one another. So what is he emphasizing? The relationships you have. He says, if you want these to last, if you want to be obedient to Christ and follow the Spirit's direction for your life, it comes to being like-minded, having the same mind, having the same love for one Another. If Christianity is calling you to anything, it's this. It's understanding how sacred your relationships are and valuing people in such a way that says us is more important than I, my, our is more important than my, we is more important than me. And I know that you'll resist this. We all do. And you know why this is so easy to say that's not the most important thing? You know why it's so easy to say, I don't know about this, Paul. Because this is so practical. This is so doable. And that's why Christianity runs away from this and hides behind things that appeal to our more selfish desires that are honestly just fleshly, sinful ideas masquerading as spiritual things. What Paul is calling us to do here, what, this, what is this same love, this same mind he's talking about? He's, he's talking about the New Testament imperative that Jesus left the church with that you all know so well when Jesus, the night before he died, said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as, 
I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And by this, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So just as I have loved you, and you're getting ready to have a front seat at how I'm going to love you, just as, and by this love, the world will know if you have love for, show love towards one another. Jesus in the New Testament calls us to leverage our lives, our relationships, our money, our jobs, all for one another. That is how God receives the most glory. That's what Jesus meant when He said, you're going to do greater things than I've even done. Because as I have loved you 11 men, you're going to spread this to everybody. Nothing's greater than the death and resurrection of Jesus. Greater speaks of depth and width and scale. Obedience to the Great Commission, loving one another, is how we accomplish greater things. So we live and love from this place. And the church only makes true progress from this place. Services and traditions, anything else, they don't change the world. They may impress the people in the house, but they don't and they won't ever make a difference in a dark, dark world. They won't change a sinner's heart. But I know what does and I know what can what has for the last 2,000 years when we love one another thankfully Paul describes the most practical way of loving one another let's look read verses 3 through 8 let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself let each of you look not only for his own interest but also for the interest of others Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no repute, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus has always been God. He's the eternal word. Jesus had all the privileges that were rightly His as the King of the universe, but He gave them up. He laid them to the side and became an ordinary Jewish baby who lived a life as an ordinary Jewish man and then made a scene declaring who He was only to submit all of that and take up a cross and die. The night before Jesus died, he sat at the table with these men and he knew that his time was coming to an end. He knew that he knew where he was going, he knew who he was. He was the largest, uh, most powerful man in the room in the world. And he looked around at these men that were so lost, so in need of a Savior. He rose and he exchanged his rabbinical robe for a servant's towel. And he got on his knees and he began to wash their feet as a symbol, as a sign of what he was going to do on the cross when he would wash away the sin of the world. Jesus, 100% God, 100% man on earth. The Word became flesh, God in a body. All the glory that could ever be due to Him. You would imagine what He deserved and what He should have received. But rather than powering up over and against the world, Jesus powered down and poured Himself out for the world. He emptied Himself of status and privilege, but on that cross, He was God Almighty, supreme and uh, in charge, able to call 10,000 angels to judge the earth, yet instead, He called 10,000 times 10,000 accusations of sin against Him and was judged for the earth. 
He did not seek his own interest. Interest He did not please himself. He counted the interest of others more significant than his own. He saw your need and my need. He saw our need for a Savior, for forgiveness and for life. And he gave his away to gain us. On the cross, he wasn't some spiritual man about to do a trick to show us how we can always get our way. He was the naked, beaten, rejected God-man, suffering, dying, and bleeding under the weight of our sin so that we might find true life in him. He didn't take off his divinity. He submitted it to death. The divine submitted to death. Nobody took his life. He gave it away. And because he was God, he could not be held by the grave. He rose back to life to give us all new life. It says to us there's a better way, a way of love, a way of grace, a way of humility, so that we could see Him as our Lord and as our Savior and as our standard to follow forever and ever. And in His image of humility and kindness that we might go out and choose giving over taking, loving over using, serving over controlling, enduring over evading, pouring out over powering up. We over me. So that we might make love a verb. So that we might have love for one another. As He said, I have given you an example that you should do. You should love just as, just as, just as I have loved you. He was always the most important person in the room. And He always powered down. He always poured Himself out for others. He did, he did not and He never felt, thought about how He could gain or benefit or profit for Himself. He thought about how He could give and bless and provide for others. That's what Jesus did and that's what we should do. Verse 3 and 4 are the most important verses when it comes to our relationships. We should memorize them and we should do them every single day. That is Christianity. Not what happens on stages like this, but what goes on in your homes, in your personal lives, in your circles, in your communities. If we have been made spiritual and Christian, this is what we will do. If I make Christian and spiritual, synonymous with selfish, that's not a personal relationship with Jesus. That's a relationship with a personalized Jesus. A few things about 3 and 4 before we close. Because there's something very practical we're going to bring from this. Why is there a call for us to be selfless? Because we, by nature, are selfish. Paul chooses to anchor the entire ministry and teaching of Jesus in this truth. And it's in the selfless example of Jesus that we can all understand our own selfish ambition. Though it's subtle at times, it is looming in the background of our heart at all times and must and must be combated using uh, against with the grace from this text. Our selfishness doesn't seem evil and it shows itself off in unoffensive, inoffensive ways that we don't pay attention to until, until we collide with somebody else's selfishness. Based on this verse, our tendency, our nature, our temptation is to do the exact opposite of what it says. So if you and I were to write this verse from how we by nature think, in terms of giving people relationship advice, we would say something like this. Do everything from selfish ambition and conceit. And in pride, count others less significant than yourself. 
Each of us look only to our own interest and never the interest of others. If you want to have a happy relationship, do that. Good luck. But we would, honestly, we would say that because we think we're right. And if anybody gets in our way, it's just because they're wrong. The reason verse 3 and 4 say what they say is because we will always do the opposite. So let me explain something, uh, how this happens, more subtle and more often than you desire. So I've got something I've got to show you. Into every relationship, into every community, especially our very close relationships, we bring a box. Not a physical box, unless you're like me. I, I might actually do this. We bring a box. A box of our own hopes and dreams, desires, wishes, plans, and intents, whatever you call them. And most of our hopes and dreams, they're pure, they're no-brainers, but they're unique to us. And usually into every relationship or community, we bring these hopes and ideas, and we hope, we assume the other person is going to assist us in fulfilling and reaching our dreams. When we get married, we don't just bring a ring to the altar. We bring a box. And we intend on handing this box off to the person. We hand this to our spouse. We hand this to our friends. We hand this to anybody that we're close to. We hand this box, but if we're not careful, hopes and dreams in the hands of the other person. Hopes and dreams, our hopes and dreams, can be understood and communicated as expectations. So when I hand you this box in your hands, you see them as, you feel them as, you carry them as expectations. As in, I expect you to do this for me. I expect you to be this for me. I expect you to help me get what's in that box. We expect one another to cooperate in our quest to fulfill our hopes and dreams. I expect you to cooperate with me in my quest to fulfill my hopes and my dreams. Our relationship will be just fine as long as you stay in line and don't get in my way of my way of doing things. At the center of every box is me. And in life, in community, in relationships, we often walk to the other person, we hand over the box, and while in our hands the box is positive energy, in your hands it's negative weight. Because expectations are the strong belief that something is going to happen, even if I've got to will it into existence. Expectations communicate themselves like this. Oh, it's going to happen, isn't it, honey? Oh, it's going to happen. We're almost there, aren't we, sweetie? Oh, you know, me and my wife, me and my husband, we're, we're about to do that. We're about to go there. We're about to be at that place, aren't we? In community and relationships, in whatever it happens, we exchange boxes and we've been and beneath the weight of those expectations. We often stumble and crumble, don't we? Because to you, what is potential to somebody else is a weight. And it's not because what's in the box is bad or wrong, but it's the way we often communicate what's in the box. And, and there are a lot of ways that this goes down. In marriages and relationships and partnerships and community, when I don't get my way, sometimes I just take my box somewhere else. I'll find somebody else that will help me get what I want. If they, if they can't, I'll just find somebody else. I'll just live my life trying to find somebody to give me what I want that's in my box. Sometimes they're in the relationships, there's someone who seems to have the stronger arm that can force their way of being the way. But most relationships, especially for marriages, but most relationships, the solution to getting what you want from your box 
It's compromise, right? That we compromise with each other. And the problem with compromise is, and most people think this is the only way, the problem with compromise is we turn compromise into scorekeeping. Well, okay, she got that out of her box, so i got to get this out of my box, and eventually we're going to be caught up so we can just start over. But until I get out of debt with her, she's going to keep saying, hey, I want my way because you got your way, right? It's a game, isn't it? It's let's make a deal, isn't it? And many people know this. When compromise is the name of the game, there is zero intimacy because you will never be intimate with someone that you don't trust and that you feel like is always extorting something from you. You'll never be intimate with someone that you don't fully give yourself to and you will not fully give yourself to to somebody that you do not fully trust. If your relationship is all about compromising, you're committed to an it, not a them. And you did not marry a marriage, did you? You married a person. So being committed to the marriage is not the answer. Being committed to the person is. Same thing go with being a part of a church. No one should be committed to a building. How silly. You're committed to a body. Verse 3 gives us a better option than compromise. Some translations you'll see the word esteem others better than yourself. Some translations you'll see the word count others, but the old NIV translation I think is best for us for this moment. In humility, consider others. So rather than compromise, which is about you, consider because that's about them. Consider. This isn't to say that your hopes and your dreams don't matter. They do, but they're yours. And if somebody loves you and values you, they'll never be able to ignore them. But to always be leading with expectations, we're saying to one another, you owe me, you owe me, you owe me. And it's so subtle. It's so subtle. And this is why marriages, this is why relationships don't last. Because I hope becomes I expect, and I expect becomes I'm waiting. And I wait. Until you give me what I want. And if you don't give me what I want, I'll just find somebody else to give me what I want. And that's where most of our worst attributes become our leading attitudes. We will become people willing to take and use and control and force whatever we got to do to get our way, don't we? If there's no benefit to me, my and I, I might just bail. That's why marriages end. That's why relationships don't last. That's why communities crumble. That's why you left and that's why they left. And that's why we always drift apart. But, but, if we, and when we do what verse 3 and 4 says, when we consider rather than coerce, when we consider rather than compromise, when we consider, 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 when facing another, we ask ourselves, what do they owe me? They owe me nothing. But what do I owe them? Everything. I'll take my box back. Because you don't owe me anything. I owe you everything. We owe each other everything, but I am owed nothing. I owe you everything, but you don't owe me anything. Until we look at the people we love and we live from that attitude, we will never, ever be able to say there's a definite future. I, you owe me nothing. 
I owe you everything. And you know what will happen if that's our attitude? Rather than trying to micromanage your commitment, I am going to give maximum focus to my commitment. Because this is the Christian mandate. If Christ encourages me to do one thing well, if I'm looking to participate in the Spirit in one area, it's through adopting this mindset of humility, this heart of love, the mind of Christ. Again, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, conceit, Consider the other better than you. Let each of you look out not for your own interest, but the interest of the others. Let the mind that was in Christ be in you. And when you hear that mind of Christ, you should automatically start thinking, just as, just as, just as, I've got to love you just as He has loved me. Paul put it this way. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So it should be a submission competition. Husbands, submit to your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Friends, family, church members, submit to one another. I don't expect you to carry my box. I expect nothing from you. But I am going to give you everything. I'm going to serve you every day. And I'm going to love you always in any ways. Why? Because I don't have a choice. Because I'm going to do to you just as Jesus submitted all that He was for the good of all of us. And that's not something you want to shout about when it comes home. But it's something you need to. You know, relationships are often like a tug of war. We pull and we pull and we pull and wait for somebody to let go. If you and I were in a tug of war match with God over our sin. Who let go first? Jesus. He let go when He died for the sin that you should have been punished for. He let go of the rope and He said, I am going to handle this. He dropped His end of the rope. His expectations for us were dropped. Christ gave Himself so we are His body, His people, His church. We have to drop our end of the rope for the somebody or the somebodies on the other end. And our collective response should be one of falling on our knees and looking around at all for whom Christ died and looking up at where He is. Because it's verse number 9 says, God has highly exalted him and given him a name above all names, that at every name of Jesus every knee should bow, every tongue on heaven and on earth and on those under the earth, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So above everybody, above every relationship, Jesus is, his death and resurrection hangs. We don't get to pick and choose who we are going to love. We don't get to pick and choose who we are going to count more significant than ourselves. Every action we make affects somebody other than us, and we better consider and choose the best possible choice that conveys and communicates his love. Because when I put you first, I am confessing Jesus as Lord. Because He loved me and He loves me. He loved you and He loves you. He loved us and He loves us. And when I'm on my knees, I never have an opportunity to belittle or use you. That's why righteous is willing to lose fights to save relationships. Because the fight isn't with you. It's within me. I'm not losing a fight with you. 
I'm losing a fight with me because me, my, I, it wants to say my way or nobody else's way. But that only ends relationships. Righteous means that I see you as valuable, as important as family, so I can't hurt you, I can't use you, I can't be disloyal to you. I owe you everything. I want our relationship to last forever, so I'm going to give you all I've got. I'm going to consider, I'm going to value you, and I'm going to love you, and I'm going to make decisions that at the end of the day are about us, our, and we, not about I, mine, me. There may be ways to be more right, but there is no other way to be more righteous because this is Jesus' way. The way of humility, the way of elevating others, the way of exalting others, the way of genuine love, the way of outdoing one another and showing honor and priority. That's the Christian way. That's the Jesus way. That's the way He loved us and He continues to love us and He invites us to come and join Him and know Him and live from that place. So this is an invitation for everybody. If you need his love, he's made it clear how much he loves you. But if you have received his love, and if you know his love, and if you worship and sing about his love, yet you are not sharing that. You are not communicating that. And you're not doing verse number three and four says, because those two verses, we are going to be judged by several things when we get to heaven about, hey, did you do this? Did you do that? For the glory of God. But I think, number one, God's going to say, verse three and four, Philippians two, what'd you do with them? I know what you did, but I want you to tell me. We've got to make a decision. Consider value and love. If you want your relationships to last, if you want them to be as meaningful tomorrow as they were before, there's hope. And it all stems from the same love that gives you and me hope for eternity. It comes from, and it only exists within, the love that Jesus has had for us. So this altar is open if you have a need, if you want to pray about something, a person you need to reconcile with that you know, a husband, a wife, a son, or a daughter, a mom, or a dad, a co-worker, whoever. If there's somebody that you know, hey, things are not right, and it's because of you. You know what to do. We all know what to do. Let's stand and worship the Jesus who did this all for us.